0: Bibles now, if you would please, and let's open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what I do want to talk to you about again today is the resurrection of Christ. This is, uh, chapter 15 is the most important chapter that we have in the Bible on the subject of the resurrection. The cardinal doctrine, or one of the cardinal doctrines of Christianity, is the resurrection of Christ. And in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we have the Bible's most extensive treatment of this subject. You can go to the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there you can read the actual account of the resurrection of Christ. But here's the place in the Bible where it ties it in with the gospel, why that it's so important for our hope of eternal life, and why it's so important as a foundation of Christianity. Now, the verses that we're going to study today will show us why Christianity cannot exist unless there is a resurrection. Back in March, during Easter, I preached from this very same passage of Scripture. And one of the things that we talked about at that time is why it is so vitally vitally important that the body of Jesus Christ has never been found. There's never been an archaeologist who unearthed a tomb, and he said, well, we have now found the body of Jesus Christ. It's never happened, and it never will happen, because Jesus came out of the grave. And what Paul does here in this 15th chapter is to show us that as believers in Jesus Christ, our resurrection is inseparably linked to the resurrection of Christ. Now, I want you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word today. We're going to look at Paul's arguments of how the resurrection is all the proof that we need, that we too shall arise. 1 Corinthians 15, we start reading in verse number 12. Paul says here, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain? Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. I ask you, Lord, that you would bless the message that we bring Lord, open our hearts to the truth of your word, and may we see the blessed hope that we have that because of the resurrection, we also shall rise. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save us from our sins. Open someone's heart to the gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the first part of this chapter, we learned about the gospel of Christ, Paul tells us there that the means of the salvation of these Corinthian people was their belief in the gospel. One of the things that's most important in the gospel is the resurrection. And there's no way that these Corinthians could have been saved unless they had first believed that Jesus did in fact arise from the the dead So Paul showed that there are plenty of witnesses to prove that he did. In the next verses that we studied last week, we talked about how uh, Paul showed them that the apostles saw it, that others saw it, that 500 people at once saw that Jesus Christ had arisen from the dead. See, uh, Christianity is not a religion of opinions, but uh, Christianity is a religion of established facts, And one of those facts is, as proved by Paul in this chapter, is that Christ did indeed arise from the grave. So in verse number 12, Paul's question is, if we have preached that Christ died for our sins and he arose from the grave, then why are there some of you now saying that Christ did not arise from the grave? Well, the error that Paul is trying to combat is not the fact that there was a resurrection. It's the fact that there was a bodily resurrection and that's what they were confused about they still believed in a resurrection as i said you could you couldn't be saved unless you believe that that happened but they were confused about whether this resurrection was a spiritual resurrection or did christ in fact come out of that grave in his body paul confronted that error in another place of scripture In the book of 2 Timothy, he talked about some people there, a couple of men who had a very serious error about the resurrection, saying that the resurrection had already passed. We read about this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, "...of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus..." Those are the two men that have this problem. "...who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some." The only way that they could argue that the resurrection was already passed was that it must be a spiritual resurrection. And so that's why Paul goes on to argue that it was, in fact, the body of Christ that came out of that grave. Now, let's re- rewind things for just a moment here and go back to uh, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And there, Paul makes a statement about both Jews and Gentiles. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22... For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, in the middle of that 21st verse, he says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The literal translation of that is that it pleased God by the foolishness of the thing that was preached. And that's the way that God saved those that believe. Well, what was it that was so foolish to these people? Well, the main thing was the resurrection. It's a very difficult thing for them to believe. Chapter 15 shows us that they have a problem with this. They have a problem, what we call an intellectual problem, with the resurrection. So we're going to talk about that first today. The intellectual problem of the resurrection. Now, it's not just the Jews and the Greeks of 2,000 years ago that have a problem. There are many people today that have a problem with the resurrection. And so they ask questions that are intended to stump Christians. And, And how could a resurrection be possible? And so they'll ask questions like, well, how is it possible that someone who died thousands of years ago... Their bodies have already decayed, the molecules and all of that have already been dispersed, Uh, plants have taken those up, the chemical processes have taken place, the body's no longer there. So how is it possible for something that is not a body to actually be resurrected? What about those people, perhaps, that died at sea? Their bodies were thrown overboard and fish ate the bodies. And so the body's gone. You don't know where it is any longer. What about those? How is God going to raise a body that's not actually there? Well, one question we might think about or statement I might make is that when you think about the intricacies of the human body, what it takes to actually bring all of the things that this body is made out of together to create life, the question really ought to be, Not how could God resurrect the body, but how could God cause life in the first place? How could he possibly do that? Did you know this, that in seven years' time, that your body is completely made over again? Every single cell in your body in seven years' time has died and has been made over again. So that means that the body that you're living right now, that you're in right now, is not the same body that you had seven years ago. It's not the same body that you had when you were a child. All I have to do is feel my aching back and all the problems that I've got. And I realize I'm not in the same body that I was in before. One thing I'm very thankful for is that in these seven-year makeovers that I have, I keep getting more and more handsome. That's a wonderful thing. I wish it were true for all of you. But that is a, that is a problem with people. What about a body? What about one that's disappeared? How's that body going to be resurrected? Well, we're dealing with an omniscient, omnipotent God. He keeps track of every single molecule that's in the universe. And if God can create life, then certainly God could call all of those molecules back together and he could raise that person from the dead. God is able to do that because nothing is impossible with God. But it seems that in exercising the intellect, that neither the Jews nor the Gentiles understood this immensity and the omnipotency of God. Now, the Gentiles really have a problem with the bodily resurrection, and that's because of the body's intrinsic corruption. So the Gentiles, their problem is intrinsic corruption. I mean, they're convinced that the body is inherently evil. And so the way to get rid of the body, the way to get rid of that evil, is for the body just to pass out of existence, get rid of it. And so it's utterly foolish for them to think that the body would be raised again. That for them would be simply counterintuitive. Well, Paul's not afraid of that argument. We're going to find a little bit later, not today, but in a later sermon, we're going to find out that Paul says, well, God's going to take care of the corruption of the body. So you don't need to worry about that. And then when we think about Jesus himself, when, when he came into the world, he was in a fleshly body. He lived here, he breathed, And while he was alive and living upon this earth, he was subject to all the frailties that every human is subject to. For instance, Jesus had weakness. Jesus was weary. There were times when Jesus had to eat, he had to sleep. Through all of that, of course, he never sinned. He was deprived in the temptation of all the basic necessities of life, and yet Jesus never sinned. But when Jesus went into that grave, he did not come out of that grave with a body that had all of these problems any longer. All of that was done because he came out with a glorified body. So he didn't have any need of all the physical things again. Paul's purpose here is to clear up this misunderstanding in the Gentile Christians' thinking. What they had done was to allow those intellectual problems of the resurrection to creep back in, and they ignored all of those witnesses that Paul said actually saw that Jesus came out of the grave in a body. Well, the Gentiles had a problem, but so did the Jews. The Jews have a problem of incomplete revelation. If I were to ask you... When you pick up the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament, what is it about? Whose history is in the Old Testament? All of you would tell me, well, the history of the Jews is in the Old Testament. And you would say, or, or what we should understand is that the Old Testament was written to give us a fuller revelation of Christ, that Jesus was coming into the world. And so we have all these prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. But when you're talking to the Jews, they're looking at it only as their book. It's a history about them. Well, we can take their book, and we find out one of the things that's written in the Old Testament was spoken by Job. And Job said this, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That sounds exactly like something that Paul would write. And in fact, Paul did write almost exactly the same thing. He just puts it in different words. The meaning is the same, and that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. He reiterates Job's statement. So both Job and Paul spoke under the inspiration of God, and they both said, in our body we shall see God. Daniel wrote about it in the Old Testament. He said in Daniel chapter 12, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Another place we have in the Bible, one that's really one of my favorite preaching texts, is in Ezekiel chapter 37. And there Ezekiel tells us about a valley that was filled with dead, dry bones. Ezekiel went to preach to that valley of dead, dry, sun-bleached bones. And when he did, under the power of God and the preaching of God's Word, those bones came back to life again. And that is a demonstration I mean, it's indicative that the people of God will arise from the dead. They'll come out with their bodies intact, and they'll be raised gloriously to be with Jesus. But despite all of those Old Testament texts that we read, and there are many more that I could mention to you, despite that, there were many Jews who said that they believed in the Scriptures, but they did not believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. How many of you have heard of the Sadducees? Most of you have heard of the Sadducees. That was a group in the New Testament. And uh, these were a group of Jews that did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, They simply did not believe that the Scriptures taught that. And so they didn't have or didn't see the full revelation of the Old Testament teaching. And so they became very upset when the disciples started to preach about the resurrection. I mean, after Christ had died, the disciples started preaching about it. And they were very upset about it. In the book of Acts, it says, And as they spake unto the people, or as the apostles, as the disciples were preaching to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the apostles that preached prior to Paul, they very much believed that there was a resurrection of the dead... And they believed that our resurrection was linked to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Paul may very well have been dealing with also in 1 Corinthians 15 is the influence of Jewish Sadducees who came back and, and relying upon that incomplete revelation that they have, not understanding the word of God, then they said, there is no resurrection. And so, when Paul says in verse number 12, we preach through the gospel the bodily resurrection from the dead, You believe that, so how do you say now that there is no resurrection? Well, when he says this, here's the problem. The intellectual side began to weigh in again, and so now they're depending upon human reasoning, upon philosophy, and the incomplete revelation, instead of relying on the undeniable fact of all of those witnesses who said they saw Christ in his body. Well, the next thing that Paul goes on to here is the indispensable proofs of the resurrection. There's one cardinal thing that absolutely has to be true in order for us to maintain our faith. And that is that Jesus must arise from the dead. We have no faith if it's not for that. Christianity will fall apart like a house of cards if the resurrection is not true. Back when I was preparing this message, I was thinking about there was some kind of a game that they had out that you could play where you build this tower and you keep pulling these blocks on this tower and you build it up to see how high that you can get it or you put it all together and you're supposed to take out one block at a time to see if the tower is going to fall. Carla Brown was here at that time and and I said, Do you do you know a game like that? And she said, Yes, it's called Jenga. How many have ever heard of Jenga? Well I didn't know what the name was. I'd never played it before. So I got to looking on the internet around and trying to figure out what Jenga was. And sure enough, it's it's that little tower. You build it out of building blocks. When you get it all there, the object of the game is pull one out at a time, and whoever's the last one that's able to pull one out without the tower falling, that's the one who's the winner. Well, I'm sure. I've never played the game before, but I would be sure of this. If you build the tower out of building blocks, you don't go down to the very bottom block, And pull that one out. If you do, the tower will fall. This is exactly what we're talking about in Christianity. If you pull out the foundational building block of the resurrection, Christianity falls. Nothing makes sense in Christianity without a resurrection. Now, let's look at some things that Paul states in the next verses. In verse 13 he says, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. That seems to be an obvious conclusion, doesn't it? That, that if there is no resurrection, then Christ could not be risen from the dead. Well, if that's true, how are you going to get around all those witnesses? What about all those apostles who saw it? What about the personal appearances? What about Paul who saw it? What about 500 people who saw it at one time? How are you going to get around the witnesses? It's often been stated that the resurrection is so thoroughly witnessed and authenticated... That if there's anything at all that you can believe in history, you can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has more attestation than most things that we read in history. So how is it then that somebody could deny that the resurrection of Jesus actually took place? Well, what they must do in order to deny it is to deny Christ humanity. They'll say, well, if he wasn't really human... Then he didn't really come in a body. He just appeared to be human. When he died, it just appeared that he died. And then when he was resurrected, it was only a spirit that came out of that grave. Well, what doctrine do we have to believe to show that that absolutely cannot be true? That Christ came out in a body. Well, it'd have to be this. It's Jesus' personality. Jesus must be a real person. He must be a flesh and blood person, which means he must have a real body. He must have come in the flesh so that he would be fully human and also fully God. Do you know there was no one who was contemporary with Jesus who denied that he was fully human? Nobody said that. I want you to listen to what Matthew records. He says, And when he was coming to his own country, speaking of Jesus, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? You see, the point of difficulty in receiving him as the Savior was because he was a man. The point of difficulty in refusing him as God is because he was a man. Nobody denied that he was a man. So they said, well, we know his mother, we know his brothers and his sisters, We're convinced that he's a man. When when they took him to be crucified. When they beat him at that mock trial. When they pressed those crown of thorns into his head. When they drove nails into his hands and his feet. When they raised that cross and pierced a, a spear through his side. They had no doubt that he was human. I mean, his body reacted exactly like a human would. He was bruised and he bled. And he died. Just like humans would. But then... When Jesus came back from the dead, when he was resurrected, he also made it a point to let the disciples know that it was really that physical body that came out of the grave. If you look at or listen to Luke chapter 24, it says, but they were terrified. And this is when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet that it is i myself handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have so jesus invited them to come and touch him because he was proving to them he was in a real body so i think that paul could well make the argument if you believe that jesus died to save you from your sins and you have confidence that he's going to give you eternal life then why wouldn't you believe him when he says I came out of the grave in a body. I'm a real person. Why wouldn't you believe him when he says that? If you're going to trust him with your soul. So the absolute humanity of Christ. That is essential. It's essential to our faith. Because Jesus must come in the flesh. He must come and he must die as a substitute. As a sacrifice for our sins. So he must be fully human. But he also must be fully God. And he proved that he was fully God because he came out of that grave under his own power and authority. So he was truly God. That's indispensable for our faith. Now, secondly, the resurrection is indispensable for the validity of preaching. I sure do hope that the resurrection is true because my profession depends upon it. Verses 14 and 15 And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. I don't preach just to make a living, but I do make a living out of preaching. And one thing that I really desire, and that is that what I do has meaning. I really want what I do to have meaning. Anybody here who who likes to work a job when you think that your job is totally meaningless? Nobody wants to do that. I think one of the reasons that people become unhappy in their jobs is because maybe they're doing something where they don't see the end product. I mean, they don't see what, what happens as the result of their work. If you're a person who works in an automobile factory, and it's your job to put in this one bolt that attaches the starter to the engine... And that's all you do every single day. You put in that one bolt that attaches the starter to the engine. How much satisfaction do you think you'd have in that job if you never saw a car, if you never saw a completed car? But what you can do, you go out after work and you get in the car, you turn the ignition key, the starter whizzes, and the engine starts. And so you can think, wow, uh, this, this doesn't work unless I put that one bolt in there. There's some satisfaction from that. But do you know that if the resurrection is not true, I don't even get that much satisfaction out of what I do. The the, the preaching of the gospel makes no sense at all without a resurrection. So it's worthless. Preaching is worthless. It's a dead-end job. No pun intended, but it is a dead-end job if there is no resurrection from the dead. Here Paul says, preaching is vain without it. That, that means, the word vain there means like empty-headed. I'd be standing up here to hear my head rattle when I preach. That's what my mother used to say all the time. Oh, well, you're just talking to hear your head rattle. Well, that's what I'd be doing. It's totally useless. So the gospel means nothing at all if there is no resurrection. There's no good news in this. Because I keep telling you that because Jesus arose from the grave, you will also arise from the grave. But if there is no resurrection, that's all a lie. It's a pointless endeavor. So, if Christ didn't rise, death is not conquered, nobody gets out of the grave. Praise God for this, there is more than the grave. Since Jesus did come out of that grave, folks, I have the greatest job in the world. And I see how meaningful what I do really is. Because I can see it in the lives of people that are changed. I know that Jesus is alive because I know he's living in people, and it's really changed them. How many of you have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. That's a wonderful thing. You know what I've just done? I've just called on witnesses that tell me that Jesus is alive. Every one of you know that Jesus is alive because he's in you. He's living in you. So I thank the Lord for that. This is a meaningful job because he is alive. Well, the next thing that it's indispensable for, according to our faith, is it's indispensable for faith's purpose. Verse 14 says again, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. What is faith for? I mean, why do you place your faith in Christ? What's faith going to accomplish? We've been over faith many times, and one of the things that we've learned is faith is only as good as its object. If you have faith in airplanes, if you have faith in airplanes, if they're going to take you to wherever you want to go, you'll go out there and you'll buy that expensive ticket. You'll run the risk of being mistaken for a terrorist as you go through security. You've been through that. You'll go there and you'll sit in that gate with little kids coming by and kicking you in the shins. You'll get on the airplane and sit in that seat that's not wide enough for a thin piece of spaghetti. And you'll sit there and wait for the plane to take off And you'll go somewhere. But if that plane only sits on the runway, that it never takes off, what good is anything that you've done? It's no good at all. You see, folks, if that grave could hold Jesus, if the seal of the Roman government upon that tomb said that Jesus cannot get out of this grave if he didn't come out of the tomb, what did you trust Christ for? Why did you do that? You know, the Bible says that the purpose of Jesus coming out of the grave is to justify you before God so that when you stand before him, you are cleared of all of the guilt of your sin. You're going to come into the very presence of God when you die. Romans says that Christ was raised for our justification. In other words, he came out of the tomb for that very purpose. But if Christ did not come out of the grave, then you're not justified. Your faith is no good. Verse 17, he says, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sin. So you don't stand justified before God if, if Christ didn't come out of the grave. It is absolutely essential. No justification, no right standing with God, no hope of eternal life. All of that's true if Jesus did not come out of the grave. So I could tell you today that the jenga of our faith stands upon the resurrection of Christ. Remove that piece, and all of it crumbles. But let me show you one more indispensable need for the resurrection. The next thing is our position. Verses 18 and 19 reveal our position. First of all, he says, we will not perish. Verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. So another conclusion of the resurrection of Christ is that all the Christians who have died before us have perished. If Christ did not come out of the grave. Now he says here, falling asleep. Falling asleep is just a metaphor for dying. And if the resurrection of Christ is true, then when you die, it is just like falling asleep. You fall asleep and then you wake up in the presence of God. Some of you very well know what I'm talking about when I talk about falling asleep and waking up. We all experience that. I see it in church. You don't know. I, I stand up here, I can see everything that goes on out there, and I see people that do this, and they snap back up, and they start to nod off, and they snap back up. And I wonder sometimes why you don't get whiplash. But I see that happening all the time. So, so this is what it's like. When you fall asleep in Jesus, you snap right back up in the presence of God. But if there is no resurrection, you don't snap up. You don't awake. You don't awake when you die into the presence of God, and neither will your body awake in the resurrection. If he didn't come out of the grave, then you're going to perish. But Paul says, because he did, we will not perish. Jesus came out of the grave, and because he's alive, you're going to wake up. You are a born-again, justified believer in him. Heaven is your home, and that's a guarantee of Almighty God. Paul wrote this in Philippians. He said, for our conversation is in heaven... From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. I want you to look at that word conversation there. That's an old King James word that many people don't really understand. Conversation, what does he mean? Well, in this particular place, he means citizenship. This place means citizenship. Sometimes it means manner of life, but here it means citizenship. Citizenship is something that was very prized in the Roman Empire. Even among those that were in conquered territories, they prized Roman citizenship because when it was granted to them, their situation improved, their lifestyle improved, their position immensely is improved by becoming a citizen of Rome. Well, the Bible teaches that we have a prized citizenship. And that citizenship is better than any earthly citizenship. Better than anything that you get here. And the best thing about it is, when you get saved, you get it right now. Your current position, if you are a saved person, is that you are a citizen of heaven. Now, I like what one commentator said about this. He said, we are a colony of heaven. Corinth was located in the colony of Rome. They weren't in Rome, but they were a colony of Rome. And that's the same way it is for a believer. You're not in heaven yet, but you're still a citizen of heaven. You are a, we are a colony of heaven right here upon this earth. So here is the truth of our position. We will not perish. When we go to sleep, we're going to experience the resurrection of the body. The sleep of death results in the resurrection of the body. Now, the second thing that we could say in our position is that we are not to be pitied. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I want to tell you something. You don't need to feel sorry for me. You know, there are people who say, well, those poor Christians, they are so deluded. Here I am out on Sunday morning on the golf course, playing golf, and those poor old Christians, they're stuck in church somewhere. Got news for you, I'm not stuck here. This is exactly where I want to be. Don't pity me. One of the things that I really enjoy about being a Christian is that I have hope in this life right now. I mean, I have a position right now. I'm not just hoping for life to come. I have Christ living in me right now. And so when there are tough times that come, hard times come along, I've got somebody here who carries all of my burdens. That guy who goes out on the golf course on Sunday, he plays 18 holes to relieve his stress. And then when he's done, he goes right back to the same problems that he had before. He has nobody to shoulder the burden with him. People will go to alcohol, they go to pills, whatever it might be, and there they try to find their relief. But then when the alcohol's worn off and the pills are worn off, what do you have left? You still got the same old problems. And not only that, you got the stupidity of the things you did in that alcohol-induced or drug-induced stupor. So you don't gain anything by that. I am so thankful that I have Christ living in me right now. But if Jesus did not arise from the grave, then very well, you ought to pity me. I have no hope right now. I have no hope for the life to come. But he is alive. I know that he lives in me because every day he walks with me, he talks with me, and he tells me that I'm his own. Whenever a loved one dies, I have comfort Whenever finances fail, God will take care of me. When all of my hope seems lost, there's Jesus Christ. I'm the one that's left singing, It is well with my soul. Don't pity me. Pity the people on the drugs and the alcohol and all those other things. Don't pity me. I'm right where I want to be. Now, the third thing that we get in our position is that we will rest in peace. Back in June, I went back to Kentucky for the birth of our third grandchild. One of the things that I always do is I go and I visit the cemetery where my father is buried. He was a veteran, and so he's buried in the Camp Nelson National Cemetery. And when you drive into the cemetery, it's just like other military cemeteries. There are hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of white stones that are all throughout that cemetery. And stone after stone after stone has a little caption on that stone, and it says, Rest in peace. My father has one of those on his stone. It says, rest in peace. Did you know that that little phrase right there is actually a reference to the resurrection? How is there peace if there's not a resurrection? How does a dead body that has no sensibility at all rest in peace or not in peace? How, how would that be possible? Well, the thing about it is, is the expectation. A body rests in peace because of the Expectation. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the expectation of resurrection. This is why he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. One hundred and eleven times the word peace is used in the New Testament. Presidential candidates talk about peace. You hear it in almost every speech. World organizations talk about it. World leaders can drive down the highway and see it on bumper stickers. Everybody talks about peace. But there's no way that anyone ever has any peace without a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is essential. You see, if Jesus is not raised from the grave, there never will be any peace on this earth. It it won't happen. Those who doubt and deny that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he arose from the grave, those people will never have any peace. Now friend, here's what I want to know about you today. Do you have hope of the resurrection? Are you one of those that was able to raise your hand earlier and you said, I've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel always produces a change. And if you raised your hand only because there were other people raising their hands, you'll never see peace. There'll never be any resurrection for you. You'll never come into the presence of God in the same sense that a believer will come into his presence. See, there's only two ways you're going to get to God. One is a believer, and one is an unbeliever. All believers are going to go into heaven to be with God forever. And all unbelievers, the Bible says, is going to be cast into the lake of fire forever. You want to be sure that you know Christ. Now, one last statement for your listening sheet today, and I hope that you can state this. I will be resurrected because I know my Redeemer lives. This is the foundation of our faith. All of our hope rests right here on the resurrection. So if Christ does not live, then the Jenga, the tower of Christianity, that tower that reaches all the way from this earth right into the very throne room of God, that tower falls apart if there is no resurrection of Jesus. So I want to know today, have you trusted Jesus? Do you believe in him? Is he your savior? I hope that he is. I know that I'm going to be resurrected because my Redeemer lives. I'm convinced of it. I trust him. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great truth of the resurrection of Christ. What hope that we have that because Jesus lives, we shall also live. I ask you, Lord, to speak to hearts today. If there's someone here who hasn't trusted you as Savior, I just pray that this might be the very day They put all their hope, all their confidence in you, trusting nothing in themselves, but they will trust you only to get them to heaven. Lord, we pray that you would work in hearts today, Christians, non-Christians, we just pray, Lord, you'd work, work to bring everyone to you. Then, Lord, I pray this, that Christians right now, right now, Christians are thinking about somebody who needs to know the truth of the gospel, someone right here in this congregation who needs to be saved. I ask you, Lord, speak to the hearts of Christians to pray. Will somebody be saved today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.